I'm staring at a pair of Wilt Chamberlain's pants, and I'm wondering the story behind that. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid. Hello, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show featuring and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. As always, I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and today's episode is a bit different in its format and content than most of my other shows. Back in February of 2020, which feels like a very long time ago, I spent two and a half weeks in Lawrence, Kansas as a project-based resident at the Lawrence Arts Center. I was there to research and look at how basketball lives in the storied college town. Although I found some of what I expected to, I also discovered so much that I didn't know and did not arrive understanding. A bit of background information about Lawrence for everyone listening. The town is home to two universities, the University of Kansas, known as KU, and the Haskell Indian Nations University. The University of Kansas' first basketball coach ever was James Naismith, the inventor of the game of basketball. And Naismith also worked with coaches and players at Haskell, which is the only four-year university in the United States where you must be a citizen of a tribe to attend. Lawrence is the sixth largest city in Kansas with a population of just over 98,000. Also, Lawrence is extremely cute, with sweet tree-lined streets, small brick churches, and a downtown filled with local businesses and shop windows that call back to previous decades. The rich basketball history in Lawrence extends far beyond the KU campus and the actual games that are played. It lives in the ground where you can visit Naismith's grave, in the old movie theater where you can watch the games for free on a big screen, and on the street where you can walk by the home where Naismith lived. And people who live in Lawrence are extremely dedicated and serious basketball fans. You can also see the original document of the rules of basketball, which lives at the DeBruce Center on KU campus, a building that was created specifically to house the rules, which were purchased for the school at a Sotheby's auction for around $4 million by a generous alumnus of the university. The rules are kept in an archival, temperature and light controlled case to keep them safe and in good condition. Visitors can press the button next to the case on the wall. At that point, the case lights up, you can see the rules, and a short audio recording starts to play of James Naismith speaking about the origins of the game. So you can look at the original typed-up rules with Naismith's handwritten notes in the margins while also hearing his voice. We will get to a recording of this later in the podcast. As many of you know, I love learning about the history of the game of basketball. And it is important, especially in the context of this episode, to share that my great-grandfather, John Truett Maxwell, was a physical secretary for the YMCA in Omaha, Nebraska. He also worked for the YMCA in the Philippines and moved his whole family to Manila specifically to help set up and work at a YMCA location there. As basketball history buffs will know, basketball spread to Asia through missionaries and the YMCA at the beginning of the 20th century. So members of my family, for better or worse, were part of the spread of the game. And since James Naismith developed the game at a YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is an important connection for me to make. I am sitting here with the book Basketball, Its Origins and Development by James Naismith, and my favorite part in the whole book is the title of Chapter 11, which is called The Need of a New Game. 
I believe that Naismith chose this title because basketball came out of the need for a game that could be played safely indoors during the winter in colder climates. But I think of the phrase, the need of a new game, as revolutionary, as rethinking, as both optimistic and realistic and filled with the knowledge that something else is required than what we have now. Of course, at the end of 2020, the phrase, the need of a new game, can be applied to many different circumstances. And as I move forward into next year, I really hope to keep it in mind in and outside of sports. From the pair of Wilt Chamberlain's pants that I got to hold at a memorabilia and frame shop to the original rules of basketball with James Naismith's handwriting in the margins, basketball history is in the air, the ground, and every place in between in Lawrence. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast, and please keep in mind as you're listening that it was recorded in many different places, and so the sound quality might differ from segment to segment. We'll start with James Naismith speaking about the origins of the game as the rules are illuminated and go from there. All right, so I'm about to press press the button to experience the rules. <laughs> Hopefully that the light will come on. Tomorrow night, 15,000 cheering fans will pack Madison Square Garden in New York City to witness a giant basketball doubleheader. In that cheering crowd, sitting in row C, seat 11, will be a modest 77-year-old man. Those fans won't know that he made possible the game they're watching. But you're going to meet him now. Sanka Coffee has brought him here tonight all the way from Lawrence, Kansas. Dr. James A. Naismith, the inventor of basketball. Dr. Naismith, how did you happen to invent basketball? Well, Mr. Heater, it was in the winter of 1891, when I was physical instructor at Springfield College in Massachusetts. We had a real New England blizzard. For days, the students couldn't go outdoors, so they began roughhousing in the halls. We tried everything to keep them quiet. We tried playing a modified form of football in the gymnasium, but they got bored with that. Something had to be done. One day I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym, divided them up into teams of nine, and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. I blew a whistle, and the first game of basketball began. And uh, what rule did you have for your new game, Dr. Nathan? Well, I didn't have enough. And that's where I made my big mistake. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. They ended up in a free-for-all in the middle of the gym floor. Before I could pull them apart, one boy was knocked out, several of them had black eyes, and one had a dislocated shoulder. But they kept nagging me to let them play again. So I made up some more rules. The most important one was that there should be no running with the ball. That stopped tackling and slipping. We tried out the game with old rules, and we didn't have one casualty. We had a fine, clean sport. Ten years later, basketball was being played all over the country. And in 1936, I saw it played for the first time at the Olympic Games. And the whole thing started with a couple of peach baskets I put up in a little gym 48 years ago. I guess it just goes to show what you can do if you have to Wow. 
it's great. I love seeing the handwritten notes yeah. alongside the the because it's a document typed at a typewriter, but then there's also these little corrections. During my time in Lawrence, I spoke with Curtis Marsh several times. Curtis works in the endowment office on behalf of the School of Music and the Performing Arts. Before working in the endowment office, though, Curtis oversaw the operations at the DeBruce Center, where the original copy of the Rules of Basketball are housed. The building, in Curtis's words, is a shrine to the rules, James Naismith, and the history of basketball at KU. And Curtis describes himself as being obsessed with KU basketball. I think every sports fan, uh, really, I would extend that to if you were a fan of, of really anything, whether it is the arts or athletics or um, music, which is part of the arts. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, you, want, you want to feel as though you are connected to something that is much bigger than yourself. And, uh, and, and then if you are a fan of it, you want to be prideful of it for very tangible reasons. And I think what I'm getting at is that I think KU is is the coolest place on earth. Uh, so is Lawrence. And, and I need to be able to back that up. Sure. So if I say that it's fine to be a Kentucky fan or a UCLA fan, I think that's fine. I, I think it's great. <laughs> it's just that KU's better. Sure. <laughs> and, and why? Why can I say that? Well, you know, people immediately go to the notion that the guy who invented the game was our first coach. Right. And that's super cool and, and of course, a major part of our history. Uh, but beyond that... A fellow played for him <clears throat> in the early 1900s who thought, you know, we could win a lot more games if we were more strategic in our rehear- in our practices. And, and really, Fog Allen, although it's been such a long time since he was with us, he's considered the father of basketball coaching mm, okay, and, and really developed the notion and, and actually played a significant role in making basketball a national and then an international sport. Wow. So, okay, I mean, we've got the father of basketball and the father of basketball coaching. Sure. And then after that, we had a whole bunch of other coaches who did incredible things and, and players that did incredible things. So that's why KU is better than anybody else. Sure, <laughs> The yes. history and the traditions. Right. And can we talk a little bit? So I've been to one KU game, um, and of course there was some wonderful um, things that happened there that I hadn't necessarily seen at other uh, college games. And that being said, I I have not been to a – I had not been to a a basketball game recently at a college where – Basketball is the sport of that place. Gotcha. So there's there's different traditions everywhere, but um, some of the those slow chants that they do that are almost spiritual in a sense, um, really like at the beginning of the game, the cheerleaders come out and they do this sort of meditative movements along with the crowd while they're saying the rock chalk Jayhawk yes. uh, chant very slowly, and then towards the end of the game that also happens, and I wasn't expecting and all of a sudden it just things become much slower and there's this wonderful sort of humming sound anyways there were just things like that that made it feel like a very unique experience actually just watching the game and um yes I'm just wondering what you're so I mean of course you you probably love those things as well well you're (laughs) defining one of the more important elements of the uniqueness of the experience at KU sure and 
I mean, there, there, there are many things you can point to. Our mascot is very unique and has an amazing story. We're not the only school that has a unique mascot with sure. a unique story. It's just that ours is best. <laughs> right. Keeps coming back Sorry, to that. I don't know how sure, no. that happens. No, I know. But I'm willing to back it up. Yeah. So our school chant is very unique. We're not the only school that has a unique uh, uh, yell or chant or motto. It's just that ours is best. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. you, you mentioned one of the primary reasons that it's so unique, and that is it's kind of haunting. Right. It's, it's not uh, yell and scream. It's, it's almost a Gregorian chant sure. with, like you said, spiritual um, underpinnings. Right. It's, it's unique, and, and you know, it's, it's been with the school since the 1800s. Wow. So history and tradition um, combine to make an experience that is like no other. And when you so when you joined the Debris Center, of course, it was already established and the rules, the basketball rules uh, typed by James Naismith or perhaps a secretary, maybe um, and with had his them, hand he notes. He had them typed. He had them typed uh, are, you know, you walk by them every day if you work there. Um, and so and what was your sort of understanding coming in as far as how to um, sort of carry on and communicate the basketball legacy that had existed Uh you know, I, it, it's a little bit of a challenge to get people emotionally excited about two typewritten pieces of paper. Sure. So, so there is an importance in in that story and bringing it to life, and and you know, setting it in a historical perspective. And and actually, one of the things I did most commonly was try and. Um, make it go beyond the notion that it was a piece of sports memorabilia. Sure, yes. We talked earlier about the fact that it, it I believe it is the only initiating document of an international sport. Right. Uh, we, we don't have the original rules of soccer or rugby or football or baseball, um, cricket, etc. Um, so many of these sports evolved over time and began as maybe a backyard activity yes. or a playground uh, activity, um, basketball really does have not just a unique sports position, but but more of a societal um, historical story and, and place in history because a sport that evolves from an initiating document mm-hmm. has a different story than one that, that had to grow in popularity before it became formalized. Right. And even James Naismith ha- choosing to invent a new sport. I mean, he said I he was assigned at the YMCA to to design a sport that that players could play indoors during the winter and they could still uh, get a lot of exercise. So this idea that it w- it didn't occur sort of naturally, he said this I need to make something in order to fulfill this need. It was a solution to a problem. Sure, basketball right. was a an answer. Yes. <clears throat> he tried indoor lacrosse, and he tried indoor football, and they didn't translate. Um, I think you know windows were broken and 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 bones were broken. Sure, right, yes. So, so it was that. That's what we're getting back to the notion that. Basketball's unique story um, 
is is 125 years old, but it had a very clear beginning mm-hmm. and and a very rational and and logical reason for becoming an activity. Right. And that's that's fun once you get into it. I mean the the second rule is that you can't hit the ball with a closed fist. Sure. I think that's weird. Yeah. I think why why would he decide that that is the second most important thing to say? Well, he was desperately concerned about his students getting injured. Sure. And and here he is trying to create a sport that is specifically meant for indoors when so few team sports, especially at that time, were meant for indoor play. Right. So you can't hit this ball with your fist for fear that you're going to miss it and hit one of your teammates or an opponent. Sure. And even to think that, you know, if someone throws a ball at me, I might, you know, swat it away with my hand, but my my initial response would never be to put out my fist because I know it's a basketball and I know what ball I'm supposed to hit with my fist, you know, instead. So I think that this idea of it being so new that that people were, there wasn't that immediate notion of this is how I handle this particular space, this is how I handle these objects. It's it's just a fun layer that you get to peel away from from the story itself. He almost immediately, this sport grew in popularity. Uh, the, the two things that are fun to point out, one is that uh, female students saw it and, and within two weeks asked if they could play it as well. It was a sport for both men and women from almost the moment it was invented. Oh. And this is 1890s. Sure, yes. So that's a cool element. Yes. And then folks started saying, can we come watch? But if you see pictures of this gymnasium they were playing it in, it was tiny. It was there was room for a basketball court, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. So in order to watch, they had to be on the in the balcony where there was a running track. And as the story goes, there were people that came to watch that were friends of someone on one team or the other, and they were right there by the basket. So every once in a while, they might just maybe kick the ball so that it didn't go in. Sure, or... help it go one way or the other. Right. <laughs> and and you know what he did to solve that? He put up a board mm-hmm. behind the basket. And so to solve a problem, he created basketball's backboard. Right. And and it wasn't intentional, but if you think about how that affects the game, it's much more fast-paced when the ball doesn't go out of bounds every time you miss a shot. Sure. It gives you the chance to do bank shots, and and rebounding is, is a much more important element with that backboard. But the reason we have a basketball backboard is because fans were messing with the game. Right. That's fun. So interesting. Linda Raymond is the director of the arts-based preschool program at the Lawrence Arts Center, and she shared some of her thoughts about playing basketball as a kid in the Wichita area. I liked basketball myself, and then in junior high, well, in, in gym class, we could we had basketball. Mm-hmm. Part of the part of the curriculum was basketball, and it was very different than it is now for women. Sure, very different. It was, um, you couldn't cross the half-court line. There were three guards and three forwards on each end. The four, yeah. So you, the only people that could make points, score points, were the forwards. Um, the guards just brought the ball up. And um, then, you know, you got to the half-court line. If you went over the half-court line, it was foul. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or it, turnover. And so, and you had to jump ball 
everything, every time there was a, I think ev almost every time you, there was a stoppage, you had to jump ball again. Wow. Well, um, then that, I can remember that from the seventh and eighth grade. And then in the ninth grade, we were at a, I moved, our family moved and we were in a different school district. And at that school, the uh, coach, our gym teacher, let us play boys' rules. Because there wasn't a boys, I don't know how the gyms were, uh, but we, they would open the door and we could play both boys' rules. Okay. <laughs> and we thought that was pretty cool. Sure. So full court. I think, um, I can't remember that. I'm not sure about that. Okay. I'm not sure about that. But um, I know we, I think it was though. Okay. I kind of think it was. And so, um, and you know, we all lived. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Believe it or Here not. Here you are today. Here I am today. <laughs> many, many years later. Sure. And um, then, of course, and that was all before Title IX. Mm -hmm. And even Title IX, after I was in, and it was, I was out of, out of school when Title mm -hmm. IX came into being. Sure. I got the chance to sit down with Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com photographer Nick Krug to talk about his time shooting KU men's basketball. Do you like basketball? I love basketball. Okay. Yeah. Great. I still play basketball. Wow. I'm, I'm old and I play with old people. <laughs> <laughs> but I love basketball. So, okay. Yeah. And is it, are you from Kansas originally? No, I'm from St. Charles, Missouri. Okay. Um, and originally, but I've been in Lawrence. Well, I came to Lawrence in 97. I've basically been in Kansas since. Okay. So, yeah. So KU basketball, aside from having this experience of photographing it, it does matter to you? Um, it matters to me to cover something that's important to a lot of people. Sure. You know, and something that has such a, a rich tradition, I'm very honored to be a part of that. So, you right. know, because a lot of good things have come from this place that um, have affected programs elsewhere and you know yeah sure sure so I am um interested in your experience as uh sitting on the sidelines documenting things like as they're coming right at you sort of you're part of whatever you're also trying to record and um how you've sort of either gotten used to that or not gotten used to that um mm -hmm. and yeah also just uh your experience photographing KU basketball for so long sure yeah um <clears throat> you know, after you've done this for, for so long, you kind of get used to the team. I mean, you, you know there's a certain fluidity to it where you know where a player is going to pass the ball, where a player might go, and you, and you become, you become um, just kind of attuned to how they're going to play the game, and that really helps inform you as a photographer as to where to be looking, where to train your lens, where to be looking, where they might throw the ball. And so you're kind of in tune with the team as they're moving, you're, sure. you know, the, your experience has, um, your experience has helped in, inform um, the, you know, what you're producing out of it. So, right. By being there so many times and seeing so many games and watching plays develop, you, you have a way of kind of um, your intuition is is guiding you in a lot of in a lot of respects as to where the ball is going to go because you've seen it before sure. because it's kind of it's there in your memory a little bit. And um, that regardless of who they're playing, it's not like they're just changing their plays from game to game to game to game to game. Right. You know, they, they run a lot of the same plays. So, so you, like I say, you, you, um, you get used to that and um, you kind of have a way of predicting and, yeah, and following the action as such. Right. 
how do you not take the same picture over and over again? Oh my gosh, I do. Like, I, <laughs> right. I feel like whenever I see Yudoka Azabuki, the, the center, grab the ball in the paint, he'll fake right and they'll turn around with the right hook. And he, you know, I, I've shot that picture a thousand times. Sure. You know, and you try not to. Um, when, when you give your report from the game, you, you try not to include the same photos of the same angles all the time. Things change. They, they definitely do. But as much as they change, you, you see the same, you know. Why, why, uh, why try to reinvent a thing that's working for you, you know? Right. If you can, if you can take that shot, if you're Azubuki and it works for you, that little fake to the right and turn around hook and, you know, from five feet out, keep doing it. So, yeah. yeah. But I see it all the time. Again, Linda Raymond on a childhood basketball memory. I remember, um, I also remember watching a KU-K-State ball game when Will Chamberlain was playing here. Wow, and K-State yes. was playing, I think they had a, a, a player there named Bob Boozer. I mm-hmm. think that's the name. I don't remember for sure. But we didn't have a television, um, but my, our neighbors did, mm-hmm. and I can remember going to their house to watch that ball game. Sure. And that was, I, I mean, I was still pretty little. Right. I mean, elementary age, for sure. And here's Curtis Marsh again. Being a fan is unequivocally a way of expressing yourself um, as, as, as a part of the game. And, and there, perhaps this is a bit of a soapbox, but, but what I mention frequently is some of the elements of being a fan that we don't necessarily realize. Um, here's a tangible way that we help the team, sure. not just being loud and being crazy, but you know what? Some of our opponents are watching the game on television. Right. And, and if they see that the crowd acts as one unit um, in, at a specific time of the game, you know, we're all doing the rock chalk chant sure. or we're all um, in unison trying to mess up the, the free throw shot sure. or we're all there at an October 25th game against a Division Three team, right. the place is packed. These are all things that go beyond Allen Fieldhouse. They are seen by the national media and people watching, and, and that actually helps us in being successful against the teams that come to the Fieldhouse. Right. They know that they're in, sort of in this specific place that has this support system. They know that there's a chance when they come to the field house that with a minute and a half left on the clock, they're going to start hearing this crazy spiritual chant. And that pretty much means they're done. Sure. You're done. Because we do not do that if it's a close game. You went to the game where we were up by 20-some points at the end of the game. And, And the rock chalk only comes out when the game is truly in hand when it's decided okay another unwritten contract yes i re- i love that because i was wondering how when and how everyone knew to, to, to do, do it. it so well and when you know it's natural for a fan who is at the game maybe it's a, a weekday game that doesn't start till 8 p.m mm-hmm. and here it is 10 o'clock at night and the game's still going on and you're like oh, i'd love to beat the traffic out sure. of here well i wish Everyone who chose to beat the traffic could see themselves on television leaving. And and folks like yourself who've only gotten a chance to see this one time, 
there are people that are watching it on TV saying, oh, my gosh, if I got to be at Allen Fieldhouse, right. there is no way I would leave and miss the last four or five minutes of the game. Definitely. And I also don't want other teams thinking, oh, well, maybe their fans are, are only so-so because they're leaving. Right. It's it's part, in, in my opinion, it's part not missing the end of the show. And it's also part unwritten contract. Mm, uh, we right. are the best fans in the nation. Sure. <laughs> uh, and, and if we are then we most certainly stay till the end and and even if it's even if we're not going to win the game or even if it's a 20 point blowout sure we're there till the end because we are unique and right. different <laughs> and yes. and and then people who happen to be watching on TV say oh my gosh they really are unique look at them they they, they have a completely full house for an exhibition game in October right but they also have a full house with 2 minutes left in a game that they're up by 20 or 30 points. Sure. It's great. That's a, that is a bit of a soapbox, isn't it? Yeah, I, no, I mean, I, I think apologize. it's good. No, it's part of your job. <laughs> I think it's important. A few weeks before I arrived in Lawrence, there had been a fight between players on the KSU and KU men's basketball teams during a game. Nick had been there that night photographing, so we discussed the images he made and photographing during moments of intensity. When, when Kansas State, for example comes to town or when KU goes there, you're, you're definitely in tune with what could happen, I guess, right. you know, and, and you know, the quote-unquote animosity that exists between the two schools that a lot, a lot of times I believe is fan-driven more than team-driven, but, sure. you know, but anyways, That's so hopefully so that answered your question. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this comment about things being... Uh, sort of the narrative of which teams hate each other and all this stuff. I mean, I can't imagine that you just automatically, like these players automatically hate Kansas State when they just arrived like three yeah, months ago. Exactly. Um, like, yeah. So especially when, I, I mean, uh, in the recent past, like K-State hasn't won a game against Kansas in a while. Is that correct? It is correct, yes. Okay, so I feel like, I mean, the the rivalries that sometimes feel the most heated and... Um, uh, that often result in maybe some negative things happening are the ones that are, um, they're close. I mean, that each team is always like, you know, it's back sure. and forth. One team wins, you know, another team loses. <laughs> rather than a team consistently beating one other team, it's like how fierce is the the rivalry. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting thing that um, you probably have more insight on than the average just person who's watching. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think the players go into that game not with the same collective memory that all the fans do. So it's it's way more built up for the fans. Than it, I mean, the players, I'm sure they want to win. You yes. know, it's, it's important. Winning that game is important. It's, it has... The Sunflower Showdown is sure. what it's called, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and maybe for some of the players who grew up in Kansas or near here, it's a bigger deal. But for the guy who's coming into town from, you know, from, I don't know, from New Jersey or, or Angola. Pennsylvania. I mean, Angola, right? Nigeria, yeah. I mean, there's players from all over the world. He may not have heard of Kansas State. Yeah, sure. Until a few years ago. So <laughs> it's not, there's not this deep-seated, um, to go back to our um, animosity that right. um, with the players that there might be with the fans. But um, I'm sure that Winning the game is is as, winning that game is as important as any of the other games that okay. they played up until this point. So, so I think I want to get in a little bit to the um, 
as the journal world, um, Learn Journal World put it, the fracas in the fog, um, which was... You start hearing words like fracas, like no one uses it. I know. Like, but... They, cho- they must have chosen, I mean, they chose it because of like the f- sound and fog, like trying to match that up maybe. Yeah, I got you, yeah. Um, so this was on Tuesday, January 21st, I believe. Um, oh, I this so. is The paper's from Wednesday, and this sure. is your photo on the, on the, um, the front of the sports section. Mm-hmm. And we have a picture of um, Silvio D'Souza, who yeah. is a uh, starting forward for um, or... not not starting, but uh, but power forward, yeah. Okay, for yeah. Kansas, and um, this was in the middle of the Sunflower Showdown, showdown which is uh, Kansas State University versus. Uh, University of Kansas, and sure. this game is played twice every season. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so one. Unless, of course, they meet each other in the Big Twelve tournament, but okay. but yeah, but definitely twice. Okay, so um, towards the end of this game, can you kind of describe what you saw from your angle, what was happening towards the end? Because sure, what I had when I was watching the replays, I mean, Kansas was up by Kansas was going to win the game. I mean, that was clear, probably from like the la- you know, uh, under eight minutes almost. Or I mean, they yeah, were up by a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, you know, okay, so um, the photo that you're looking at is um, DeSouza with the chair, and it's in the uh, wheelchair accessible area, and there are a lot of students looking at the event happening. He's got it raised above his head, and there are yeah, several people kind of coming in and like a in a gasp, just like, don't do it, dude. <laughs> you know? Right, everyone's reaching for sure. the stool to try and get him from using it in a violent way. It's Yeah, well, we there's, there's kind of a lot of... Um, a lot of direction. Um, a lot of people are moving toward him. You can see from both both angles of the frame. Right. And um, this was literally like the first thing that I saw when I got fr- to the end of the court where this is happening, because this happened near the Kansas State bench. The 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 fracas. Sure, the fracas. The fracas. Right. <laughs> um, and and uh, in the second half, I'm almost always photographing from the other end of the court. Okay. Um, usually the first seat from the bucket and um you know and and at the end of the game sometimes people are upset because they've their team didn't play well or whatever reason things happen and you know there might be a little bit of shoving here and there but like i say it's quickly diffused but um so at the end of the game when it was clear that time was expiring there were only seconds left i Grab my stuff, and I got my wide-angle lens to go out and shoot the handshake line, and oh, then gosh. the pushing started happening, and I was moving at a normal pace, and then there was just a clear moment where you could tell, like, this is way more serious than, you know, anything I've ever right. seen, any, any little skirmish. So um, at that point, I kind of double-timed it to the other side of the court, um, to the left side of the basket on the K-State end, and... That's when I saw this, and that was it. And then I'm a I'm a short guy. I'm not I'm not tall. I'm five six, maybe. And um, you know, and there's a lot of like large people around me. And so my instinct was was just to get on top, on the backside of the standard. There's a little platform that's about three feet up. Just stand there and just photograph what I could see. Sure. And I was pretty concerned with showing the environment of it because. Where it was happening was as significant as kind of what was happening. Right, that it's happening in the wheelchair accessible. You know, people were yes. There was not not much was taken into account as far as were any concern with other people outside of the game when this fracas broke out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Hopefully that answers your question. Sure. Yes. So, um, 
the way that I so I did not see the game live. I just heard about it later on and watched mm-hmm. a bunch of replays. And so it seemed like Kansas State was down really big, and you know seconds were running out on the clock. Uh, University of Kansas was uh, or KU. Sorry, I'm uh, trying to keep everything straight. KU is bringing up the ball, and the person who's defending um, the person bringing up the ball goes for a steal. The K State player goes for a steal. I mean, there's like you know six seconds left or something, sure, and then he. Yeah takes the ball to go for um, a layup. Uh, KU player chases him down, blocks it. Th- that was um, Silvio DeSosa, yeah. DeSosa, DeSosa who blocks it, and then he sort of stands over this guy after blocking it and maybe says something. Probably said, like, don't do that. Or, sure, you know, or, right. You know, it was, it was definitely taunting for sure. Yes. yes. Well, and I think that, so I know that there's this conversation within basketball about what, how to handle the final seconds of the game when someone is clearly going to win. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like if you're the team that's winning, you're not going to try, you're probably not going to try and dunk the ball. That would be sure. super disrespectful to the other team because it's yeah. clear. Um, and I'm just, I think that this, this circumstance for me has brought up a question of can the team that's losing keep trying or is there a difference between the team that's losing keep continuing to try versus the team that's winning it's, it's, continuing to try? It sounds so sad it's, right. like, it's like at what point you just accept defeat right um yeah i think uh, you know i um I think definitely that at a certain point when a team is showing mercy, like, or just running the clock out, I don't think it's cool to go steal the ball and dunk it. Sure. Um, I've definitely seen KU players do such things. Like at Iowa State, a few years ago in a big game, um, a player did that and was, you know, was kind of given a dressing down by the coach. Sure. Um, you know, a KU player. And, but yeah, it's, you know, at a, at a certain point, I think um, if you're being shown some mercy, I think you just got to... It's not the second. It's not the first time that's happened this year at Allen Fieldhouse. Mm, okay. It happened um, earlier in the year. I don't know if it was. Oh gosh, um, an, another team where a player did the same thing and came in and dunked it, and then yelled at the KU players at the end when KU was clearly up, and and it was deeply frowned upon. But interesting. Yeah. So a lot of players were ejected. They all went to their locker rooms, but then the refs figured out that there was still like, you know, five-tenths of a second or something <laughs> yeah. left on the clock, and there's some newer <coughs> rule Pardon in the me. NBA, or sorry, in the NCAA, where it's like everything needs to be played to the last, I mean, the clock has to run out or the yeah. game doesn't count. Yeah. So they actually brought the players after this huge brawl, they brought the players that weren't ejected back on the Seems kind of ill-advised, doesn't yeah, it? I mean, it's like, I mean, I guess if it was for such a short amount of time to finish the game, it's like only so much bad, sure. so many bad things could happen. But um, it just, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that it's just really, I mean, were you there when they brought everyone back out? No, at that point, I, I was, I had, everybody had left the court and the players had left and I went back to the media room because mm-hmm. I, um, Cause you know, I had to like start getting stuff filed in, sure. you know, we have deadlines and stuff and like a major event happened at the end of the game. Right. You know, sometimes, so that changes the everything. sometimes, yeah, sometimes when not, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but, um, when the game is, is decided pretty early, sometimes the people who are laying out the paper are like, all right, we got to start going with, we got to start laying this thing out. Sure. And, um, maybe, and it doesn't always consider everything that happens photographically at the end of the game, you know, and to no fault of their own. They've got they got deadlines. Right. So, but um so I had to quickly go back and send them photos of everything I had from from the brawl. Yes. Or fracas. Yeah, I mean what I whatever we're calling it, yeah. yeah. The undoing at the end of the game. Um, um so I did not I did not go back out only 
because um, I didn't have any sense that anything of any significant any significance was going to happen at that point. And plus, my cards that were going in, my memory cards were uploading into my camera. Sure, so, right. Yeah. And when you first started doing um, sports photography and <laughs> being so close to the game and the action and stuff like that, did it take you a little while to get used to? you know, people's bodies kind of like maybe getting close to you, flying oh, into you, yeah. especially, I mean, sometimes I think, I don't know who I'm more worried for. Is it the photographer who's just sitting still and having this player kind of like run their body into them? Or is it the the athlete who, you know, I remember LeBron James like falling into a photographer. This was, I think, in the 2016 finals and mm-hmm. he hit his head on a, um, a, camera. a camera and yeah. he cut his head sure. just on the lens or maybe it was on the outside. And um, I'm just thinking like who has to learn more quickly that mm-hmm. like you can't you just have to pretend they're not there <laughs> yeah it's not happening. <laughs> i think i think the players definitely have to remember <laughs> that we're not there um as photographers i think um, <laughs> i also think that um when in such situations it's happened a couple times just because of the the location of where i typically sit and it's not always by my choice it's um that's just kind of where ku has said lawrence journal world you sit here in the first half you sit here in the second half sure and you know, and that's your spot. Um, but my spot in the second half is definitely primed to take a little bit of, a little bit more impact. And it's, it's not a big deal. Typically I can see it happening when it's, when they're coming at me, you can tell by when a player's coming that hard to the bucket and their angle, they're coming at the basket, which is directly in your line of view. Sure. Like you better be prepared to kind of grab your gear, move it so they don't you know, smashing your gear, hurt themselves, hurt your gear, right. and just kind of make yourself a loose, like, blob of... <laughs> For those of you listening, a... <laughs> uh, Nick just kind of uh, started to put himself in the fetal position a little bit. Well, you know, just kind of like... <laughs> to a certain extent. I, I don't want to, like... You don't want to, like, be, be a, a hard um, impact spot. Sure. So I just kind of try to, like, turn and grab my stuff and keep it away as much as I can. Um, you know, and that that being said, nobody can really prepare for every situation sometimes you just get hit hard but um it it those 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 situations don't happen that often but um but yeah when they do you just kind of want to protect the player and protect your gear sure right and your gear is cheap or you are cheaper to fix than your gear that's what they always tell you so you know so yeah and is this one of the i mean most memorable such uh events that has taken place i mean as far as outside of like winning a national title or were you were you there i was there in I was 2008 there. i was yeah. against memphis yeah i was there um wow. i was i was pretty young so um that was that was a huge game for me yeah. um because I, I got a photo of the mario chalmers shot which was just kind of worked out from and where i was sitting the game into overtime it did yeah okay. and that was that was a pretty memorable moment and I, there's few few um moments that would probably surpass that but this i mean unfortunately I'm not going to forget about this. <laughs> you totally, know? yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be entering my memory like a bad thing, but, um, you know, I probably won't forget about it. Right. You know? I think that, I mean, um, of course it, it was not, it's not a good thing that it happened, but I think that there's so much pressure put on players, especially <laughs> players that are, you know, the spotlight is on them, not just from the school, but nationally. Sure, yeah. Um, and I just think that we... 
and when I say we, I, I don't mean you and I. I mean, sure. just in general, there's this expectation that we want players to be um, aggressive and sort of ferocious and defend their home court and let yeah. you know, and all these things. But we also want them to be behave in this sort of controlled way and uh, mm-hmm. like gentlemen or, or who, you know, whoever it is playing. Um, so I feel like that, that, that contradiction of sometimes wanting all these things from from one person, all these different ways yeah. of behaving. Of course, we're not going to get all of the, you know all of them all the time, and one is going to be more extreme than the other. Certainly, um, yes. So, even though actually um, any kind of, I mean, just physical fighting is it's difficult for me to watch, and at the yeah. same time, it's like it's I can't imagine a, a sort of. It just seems like this happening sometimes is, is it's part of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's hard to, you know, like, like you, like you say, there is an expectation for players to play as aggressively as possible. Right. right. And so that volume gets cranked up to 12 and then like, how do you turn it back down to three? Sure. You know, that, that quickly, especially when people feel like they're being insulted in front of a large group of people, right. you know, and it's, I'm not, I'm not giving um, anybody involved a pass because I think there are clearly some really bad decisions made, but you know, that's, that's just kind of the paradox that you're in there. So, and um, just going off that, um, every interaction I've ever had with Silvio has been a really good one. Sure. Like, he's a nice dude. Right. Like, and I've, I've shot his portrait several times, and, you know, I'll pass him in the hallway at Allen Fieldhouse, and he's nice, and he always says hello. And um, he's just been a good guy, top to bottom, except for this one event. Sure, This is course. bad, you know, but he made a really bad decision. And um, But I don't, you know, just trying to put myself in that position and I would never be there because I'm no good at basketball but I would um I probably wouldn't make any good decisions either so I have to kind of consider that also when I um consider my opinion of people and him in particular but yeah especially I think that at at certain ages I mean if there was someone photographing uh, if there was a newspaper photographer photographing all the um sure bad decisions I made as a 20 year old yeah, right. like whoa oh, oh totally. my gosh totally. I mean yeah. like so I think I think it's again this thing of just re- um realizing and of course I mean this might be something that that follows him for a little while or is part of his time at, at KU yeah, yeah. unfortunately but I just think it's always like there's got to be another um thing that you know it's like he's he is many things he's done many things and this happens to be the one that um got a lot of attention yeah and it's and, it, and be, it got a lot of attention because it doesn't happen all the time you know like he he, he like you were saying you pass him and he smiles and you have these great interactions which are much more commonplace than this this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's What better time than now to support our favorite local businesses? And for me here in Tucson, it's Bookman's. Moving forward in the new year, I hope we all make a point to shop locally and support our favorite spots as much as we can. It is very important now during the pandemic more than ever to shop and spend our money locally and with businesses we care about and trust. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store. And the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling and trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. Lawrence-based artist Leo Hayden contacted me months before I arrived in Lawrence about during the Mart 
March Madness exhibition he was putting on. I'm so excited that I got the chance to take part in this and speak with Leo about the origins of the show for the podcast. Okay, so I am now here with Leo Hayden in the audio recording studio at the Lawrence Public Library. Huge shout out to the library for um, having this amazing space here. And we are discussing the origins um, and involvement of the March Madness um, art exhibition that uh, Leo puts on every year uh, with Lawrence Artists. And I am lucky enough this year to be a judge in the uh, show. This is spelled M-A-R-T-C-H Madness. Um, So yeah, Leo, thank you for coming on. And please tell me um, a little bit about well, maybe just you as a sports fan to start out, and then we can get into how the how the show evolved. Yeah, well, I'm from a basketball family. We're all just, uh, you know, five, four siblings, and we're all taller, and basketball is a natural <laughs> gravitation sure. for that. So we all played high school basketball, and uh, like two of my sisters played college basketball, and so it was just, uh, we've, we've always been a basketball family, right? And uh, but... Uh, yeah, but the NCA tournament is has always just been the whole one and doneness of it. It's you know you get one shot and you, right. to keep moving on, and I, I love that part of it. Whereas in professional sports, you tend to have just the best of seven series and kind of right. rules out Cinderella a little bit. Sure. That anything's possible. Right, right. Yeah. So you are a KU basketball fan. I am now. Okay. I moved here 12 years ago. Before I got to town, I was a big fan of the NCAA tournament. Right. But I really did not understand the level of uh, and the history of KU. And then once I got to Lawrence and started learning all the back, you know, it's it's impossible not to live in Lawrence and not be a KU fan. Right. So tell, tell me, tell us a little, well, I know because now I'm an insider, I'm a judge, but tell uh, the listeners a little bit about how the the art exhibition breaks down as a turn, with the tournament theme. We put out a call for artists and uh, essentially we generally have more than 64 people that enter, but the way artists work in this world by the time you get around to the tournament, they're like, oh, my God, here it is. I'm not going to have anything ready. So you always got to have more than 64 artists right, enter. Right, just in case. And then if you end up with more, you just kind of like with the last – what I do is I set it when I get to 60 pieces, then the last four and whatever I have extra just do kind of a play-in round, just like the actual NCA tournament. Sure. So we just have to kind of jury those last pieces so in the last four pieces. Yep. And okay. then we and then we set the bracket and uh the way I don't especially like when you know the vast majority of the artists in the tournament, I don't want to be the one to say you're a one seed and you're a sixteen seed. So I think I actually, that could be really rough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> people will yes, uh, the, yes, even as it's judged, I think if I judge somebody as a 16 seed, they would judge me more than they. Uh, sure, <laughs> right. Well, I think that I mean, really, the um, it's a little bit more obvious in sports when there are winners and when there are losers, and who the better teams are. So the one 16, I think that oftentimes, like the 16 seeds are are excited because they weren't sure if they were going to make the tournament uh, right, right. in a sense. So this idea just that, glad to be there, glad to be there, and so I think that that cannot. There's no way that that same. Uh, Thinking can apply to art because it's like, um, 
there's no way there's not as it's not so black and white as far as like who did well and who didn't mm-hmm. because it's all right. in the eye of the everyone has such different tastes and there's right. not like a right piece of art or a wrong piece of art. So I think that that's, um, yeah, I'm glad that when you seed the uh, pieces that you're not doing it off of what you think is more successful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it does. Well, so, so essentially I found an online way that it, it takes the numbers one through 64 and assigns them randomly into a bracket. So I just get, I just get all the names Make them alphabetically one through sixty-four, sure. and then it randomizes, and that's how it's set. So that that decides who's a one seed, a sixteen seed, eight nine right. seed, and you know, and it's kind of unfortunate because like you might have some really strong pieces that actually meet in the first round that would have been final four pieces. Right? You know, yeah, and, but they're and, one's going uh, home. Yeah, uh, yeah and one's going <laughs> home. Well, one's going to I guess the west wall in this sure. case, and the other's going. <laughs> So the, the, East <laughs> the March Madness exhibition is actually up at a coffee shop in town um, called SNS Coffee. Sean and Sons Artisan Pub and Coffee House. Okay, great. I did not get that right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, as as pieces are eliminated, quote unquote, I'm doing quotes right now, mm-hmm. uh, they get not sent home as would happen mm-hmm. in the NCAA tournament, but they get moved to another wall mm-hmm. and the bracket shrinks. We What we do is it's kind of an art show that's five shows within one show in that we have an opening. And then every week when we do a round of cuts... We rehang the show, so I'll I'll hang the 32 pieces that are still vying, um, you know, and I'll just on one wall, and then we'll move the others, rehang it, and then the next week we'll shift over, and then the Sweet 16 will be sure. all, all together with the pieces that they're against, you know, appropriately. Right. And uh, it's. It's a lot of work, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's a- I think it's just it's so it's such an interactive way to go about having a show where it kind of it, it adjusts over time and changes over time. And it's for me, at least as a judge, I think something I realized was that I was, you know, when I first started out going through and looking at the pieces and deciding which ones I thought should move on and which ones I thought should um, be moved, literally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say go home anymore. Um, I think that I was looking at just those that that pair so seeing like this this piece versus this piece mm-hmm. and which and sort of the aspects of but by the time you get to the end I was starting to make comparisons between ones that I'd already you know pieces I'd already mm-hmm. seen over here and the uh, ones I was seeing over there and and thinking about like oh did that piece go on and uh, this piece well, you know and so it, it is hard to not take the show as a whole uh-huh. even though I am judging the pieces against each other right right yeah it's mm-hmm. interesting um sort of way of of looking at it it is cutthroat in a sense. I mean, I think it is up to each. It is cut. It's it inclusive is, and cutthroat. <laughs> I, you know, it, actually, everybody is really, really great about. It. Like, like no one takes it so seriously that sure. they're uh, hurt or something. Like, it, it's it's very tongue in cheek. Like, I, I thought a really interesting thing last night. We had a we had a drawing event after the the uh, opening. Sure. And uh, at the drawing event, there were two artists sitting next to each other who didn't actually know each other that were actually against each other oh, wow. in the tournament. <laughs> and then uh, like halfway through the drawing thing, I I had to point it out to them. I was like, do you guys actually know that that's you two? You know, the way? Uh, and they, did, they didn't. So so then like the rest of the night, they were jokingly like, I'm just going to wait till he's halfway done with that drawing and I'm going to push his pencil. Yeah, you know? just, right. Uh, like the competitive suddenly comes out. Totally. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it's really great. And I think that 
I just, I mean, I guess why I'm saying that it can be um, cutthroat is because this idea of judging it comes into the pieces that I react to most quickly. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, whenever you're comparing two things, most likely you're going to have stronger feelings about one than the other, you know, no question. But then I think about, okay, like, what are, what are the pieces sort of offering? So there's like the visual that I'm either drawn to or not drawn to, but then, or, you know, drawn to right. less, but then also it's like, what conversation is this piece maybe right. starting or what, what purpose does it serve? And maybe that purpose is more important than the visual that I prefer, right. you know? So I think that there's all these different things that come into it. And the fact that we don't theme it, the, the subject matter can be whatever you want like right. obviously it's hanging it's hanging in a coffee shop so we you know we don't want to get too crazy with the theme but sure but um yeah it's it, you you get a vast majority of things and then there's always the challenge of some people bring in sculptural pieces that you can't hang on the wall and how do you display that right and, and uh i there's yeah i've always lot of things I've kicked around in my head like maybe one year we get 16 sculptors and 16 painters or you know there's a there's a, a lot of different ways we could go with it sure yeah you know, and then and then and then you'd end up with a final sh- four show where one sculpture one painting one yeah right and a performance I think, piece <laughs> and I think another important thing to it is that we get the the number of judges it's good to get a lot of the judges feel less uh Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They pressure. Pressure. Yeah, they feel less pressured because for other people, you, you know, like no matter what, they weren't necessarily the deciding piece to sure. it. Sure. Yeah. I think that that was uh, I felt some safety in that because mm-hmm. you know I'd be like oh is my decision going to be the one and of course my decision because there's five judges my mm-hmm. decision could be the one that right. you know gets a painting moved to another wall or gets a piece moved to another wall or not. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, knowing that, that there's like sort of kind of strength in numbers, mm-hmm. like if other people also agreed with me, then I, you know, I wasn't sort of making a, a poor decision necessarily. Uh, right. um, so I think that that, that is good. And the, and the ones that are really kind of close, well, at least that it gives you that comfort level. Even if you chose the opposite, like it gives you that comfort level that, well, I was on the fence on this, but. Sure. Yeah. And there were a couple, I mean, I was there with you the other day and as I was judging, like there were some that I had to, you know, really go back to and stand in front of for a while and be like, okay, what, what kind of decision am I going to make here? What, what, what's going to sort of, uh, what, what do I want, want my legacy in Lawrence to be as a judge, yeah. you know, as far as what art I chose? And I think that we might have missed this earlier, but like the literal decision, you had described it to me before, but when you were like, I'm going to do this, you know, uh-huh. that progression from, from maybe the shows that you were in in the yeah. beginning of your time here to when you were like decided like the March Madness tournament, show is going to be a thing <laughs> uh-huh. yeah that, that's where uh, other people get involved like sure. you you have the idea in your head and you're just like oh it'd be so awesome if we could do that but you kind of like don't think you'll pull it off right but, but the, like i was telling you i was sitting in a it was a lawrence art guild meeting and uh, uh, a friend i had just met recently had, had, was at the meeting with me and we were just talking in the course of meeting i'm like I've been kicking this thing around in my head. I'd really like to do it probably next year if we can pull it off. And I, I was explaining the basics of it. And before I know it, he's just like two weeks later, we had the show up. You know, <laughs> he, he, ju- he just was insistent, like, no, we're doing this. You, sure. You know. Or he was, no, you're doing this. Right. But I'm going to support <laughs> you. Yeah, like... Yes. Yes. I'm going to support you by like making you have the initiative to tell these people you're going to do this. Sure. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I, I really love how it began that way because it does um, – it, it, it's not just about, 
you and this idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 already grown to so much beyond that, as far as like including all these other people and having the jurors and stuff yeah. like that, and then involving um, Sean Sun's coffee shop and that being a part of it. And it's just like mm-hmm. I like that it you had the idea and then someone was like you you there's no uh, question you know you yeah, have yeah. to do it uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And also, like, like uh, three of our judges this year were in the final four last year. Yes. So that, that, uh, that's a fun part of it, too. Right. You know? Totally. So obviously they enjoy doing it, but yeah. it's easy to enjoy it when you're in the final four, I guess. Right. <laughs> totally. And I'm doing my best to not have a dunk contest sort of miscommunication <laughs> incident. Well, I'm not talking to any of, the, any of the other judges about what they've chosen, but I'm also um, – yeah, I just don't want anyone feeling like Aaron Gordon fell after uh, that contest. <laughs> like, uh, just really, you know, year after year, just not quite conspire, making it. Yeah, conspire. Conspire. Oh, no. I, okay, you go You you go nine, I'll go ten. Yes, yeah. so there's none of that. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, they do. So we'll see, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so, I feel really grateful to get to be a part of this and I'm so glad that I also were able to share more information about it and uh, um, yeah it's such an amazing thing so thanks for putting it together oh no thanks for like I said thanks for when I reached out you immediately I I could tell right away like this was made for this person (laughs) this person will totally get this totally it is so fun and just I mean I loved last night at the um, opening everyone that attended the opening filled out a bracket Uh, for what they thought you know and so it's just there's so much involvement that goes beyond the normal art exhibition it really makes you think all the different reasons something should or should not move on and i love that yeah and the bra- the brackets are fun in that like once you fill one out then you're like you kind of feel obligated well i gotta go back and check sure, and see how my yeah, bra- i gotta it. check my bracket yeah. and see how it's doing uh, right like, so are there actually like people who win the bracket contest uh, well, well the ones we've collected yeah we'll go through and announce Great. a winner and i think I think the idea is we'll have some kind of gift certificate or something from sure. Sean Sons for i'm sure yeah we're it's gonna it's great Cool. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh And um, I look forward to being a part of the March Madness exhibition, hopefully for years Uh on. I want to support it. Yeah, totally. Cool. Thanks, Leah. Looking forward to it, too. Thank you. And one last time, Curtis Marsh. We had talked about this a little bit before, but I would love to talk about how James Naismith ended up coming to KU and this unique offer that he had received, um, which as someone who is currently on the job market, I can't even imagine something like this just working out and the way it worked out for him. But sort of his early the early years that he spent here, and, and maybe we could then also go into the first Olympics where basketball was played sure. and, and talk about the 1936 Olympics with James Naismith being there. On campus, we are we are constantly talking with students about what comes next. And and you know, once you have been at school a couple years and you've you've gotten you really know what it's like to be a college student and you've enjoyed your time there and you're doing well in classes and you're you're uh, doing other things outside of class, well then suddenly it it's time to think about what happens with this degree that you've gotten. Right. And, and what we tell them is that it's, it's very hard to know which door to walk through, but the best way to get a wonderful opportunity is, is to have many doors in front of you. Sure. And, and Naismith did just that. Uh, his unique story starts not even in the United States. Uh, he, was, he was born a Canadian and uh, a challenging Childhood, I think it's fair 
to assess. He lost both parents at an early age, lived with an uncle, dropped out of high school, and became a lumberjack. Um, just that alone, oh my gosh, how did a lumberjack turn into a doctor who created basketball? Right. Well, it's because he had many doors um, available to him and was willing to walk through them. He he chose in his early 20s to go back to high school, get his uh, diploma, and then he went to McGill University to join the ministry. Mm-hmm. And during that time, discovered this passion for how team sports could um, develop character and, and strong qualities in young people. And, and that was not so much a, a, an accepted position in religious circles mm-hmm. because team sports meant you were p- pretty close to another human being sure. with whom you were not married. <laughs> so you're <laughs> right. tackling and you're pushing and you're falling onto the sure. ground together. It's not unlike dancing, which Kevin Bacon told us in in, right. in Footloose that, you know, it wasn't okay. Yes, exactly. That's the lesson I learned. <laughs> but the important element is that this was – he felt like this was becoming a calling. And so uh, Springfield College, after he was done at McGill University and, and had his degree – he discovers that Springfield College is helping to run a training program for the YMCA. Mm-hmm. And here is a program, uh, also, by the way, not a U.S. Uh, program uh, uniquely. It was oh, created wow. in London. Okay. So it already had an international flavor sure. and, and was training people in Massachusetts to, be, to become directors. They, they call them secretaries, but, but directors of YMCAs. And, and here was a program uh, within which he found some comfort in his notion that in, in, in athletics and in team sports, you could develop moral character, mm-hmm. uh, leadership qualities, team, teamwork, and, and, and things like that. So he, he really found a home by teaching in this program at Springfield College. Sure. And that's where this challenge faced him where he had to create an activity for his students. Right. Four years into Springfield College, he found an opportunity in Denver to run a YMCA. And then four years into that program, he got an opportunity to come to the University of Kansas and and accept a position that was both athletics-driven and religious. He, he, he was basically the in charge of the ministry at KU and the athletic program. Right. And that, that fit him perfectly. Then James Naismith arrives at Kansas, and he introduces uh, – basketball is already being played here, or does he introduce basketball to KU? Well, he certainly becomes our first formal coach. Okay. And, and yet there's a subplot right there. He, he wasn't terribly interested in being a coach, and, and of our eight coaches – for men's sports or for men's basketball that we've had in 120 years, he's the only one who left with a losing record. It's so interesting. That's great. But there, there, as is always the case with good stories, there are plenty of reasons why that was the case. Only one of which was his focus was more on developing the person mm-hmm. through his sport than than. Um, collecting wins. Sure. In yes. fact, he was quoted as saying, I actually rather like asking 
the player to make decisions rather than simply following the coach's uh, requests. Sure. Mandates. Right. So, so that is almost an anti-coaching statement. And, yes. and it took one of his players, Fog Allen, to say, well, hold on. I mean, it's, it's also nice to be successful when sure. you're playing. So let's, let's, let's bring at least a little bit of the coaching element into play. Yes, that's so interesting. So if James Naismith might have stayed as a coach for longer, there's a possibility that uh, the – I that mean, our just, record might your not. record might not be as good, which is well. Thankfully, oh gosh, I mean, there, there's, you know, Fog Allen only coached for one year after Naismith stepped down, mm-hmm. and then Fog left, and he he went, um, he went to the dark side. He he went. You may have some listeners in Missouri, so I apologize for okay. that. But he he went and got a degree in Missouri, and 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 actually applied for the head basketball coaching position at Kansas State University wow. and got turned down. Oh my gosh. So he came <laughs> back 8 years later and and was our was our coach for almost 40 years. Okay, wow. And and I mean he really established the the basketball program that that we are still experiencing today. In fact, you could and he he helped establish the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Um, we talked earlier about how lovely March Madness is. Right. He he played a significant role in that because when he was a young coach, uh, the NIT was the National Invitation Tournament was more was a stronger tournament um, than the NCAA could yes. could provide, and their first year of offering a tournament did not go very well and was not financially successful. And NCAA said maybe we won't do this again. And and Fogg said, "Hold on, I think that's I think it's an important thing to continue. Let me host it or help host it in Kansas City sure. next year. And wouldn't you know it, KU played for the championship that year, wow. and it was very financially successful. And um, NCAA agreed to continue it. Thank goodness. Sure, yeah. And now, I mean, I'm sure he might not be able to imagine the financial aspects of it today. Oh my gosh, definitely. So the, you mentioned the Olympics." Um, Fog Allen was also more of a promoter than James Naismith, who again really wanted this to almost be more of 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 an exercise in creating both a strong person mind and body mm-hmm. rather than a national sport. Um, but Fog Allen wanted it to grow, and and um, they 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 were they were a team. You know, there there were very different perspectives between the two but there was there was a healthy appreciation between both of them and mm-hmm. and and they honored each other to the point that when when Naismith worked towards getting basketball as an olympic sport um he also began a fundraiser of sorts to collect enough money for James Naismith to go to the Olympics in Berlin uh, in 36 to throw the first ball. Oh, I didn't know he um, threw the first ball. Indeed. And watched every game. Sure. Um, And in fact, the, the, the gold medal game was between the United States and Canada. Wow. So he basically said, I can't lose. Sure. <laughs> Both yeah, of my right. countries are, are playing. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting game. They played it outside and, and it was raining. So 
not not probably not the kind of game that we expect to see. No, today. I don't think that would happen at FIBA in a FIBA no. tournament or anything like that. In fact, that, it was right? a dirt sure, floor, yeah. so it was very muddy and yeah. uh, as I understand dribbling was not much of a part right. of that game at all. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I mean, your knowledge, your immense knowledge about the history of basketball is just very helpful to me because, um, of course, I can read books and I do and I try and do my research. But it's also so nice to just hear the things that you find interesting, you know, that are part of your sort of the, the way that you presented them and spoken about them to other people. Well, it's it's just as important to find out what parts of the story are important sure. to others. Yes. And, and the, the, the opportunity to talk to you about imagery and mm-hmm. how the arts combine with I mean I'm a musician who right. learned to love basketball uh, and and there is a wonderful connection between the two right. um, because that pep band at Allen Fieldhouse and that marching band at Memorial Stadium that's a big part of the story yes definitely so it's you know I, I joke about how any topic could bring us back to the University of Kansas and and um, maybe even to basketball but uh, that's that's just because there are some really rich elements of the story um, that that can be related to many things. Yes, and I think that I I, I so appreciate you, everything coming back to KU. I mean, from your perspective, I think it's like there's so much value in sort of um, uh, the, the the pride and the excitement and 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 knowing why those things exist. So yeah, thank you for sharing. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yes. thank you for sitting and discussing this wonderful topic. Anytime. I hope we have many more conversations in the future. Same here. Great. Thanks so much, Abigail. One of the last nights I was in Lawrence, I had made a plan to watch an intramural women's basketball game at Haskell University. When I arrived, there was no basketball, but instead a vigil was taking place on the court for a woman who had attended the university and played on the university team and had died one year before. I felt then, as I do now, that this was not my place to be or my experience to share, so I won't say too much more. But to be around a group of 20 other people, all strangers to me, standing in the dark with the only light being glow sticks and twinkle lights in the shape of a heart at midcourt, and to listen to stories about this woman, what kind of person and teammate she was, was the most impactful experience I had during my time in Lawrence, and reminded me that basketball as a game encompasses a lot life, death, pain, accomplishment, beauty, and horror. And I thank the woman at the door to the gym who invited me to stay and handed me a glow stick to hold to witness the honoring of this life. One thing that is important for me to acknowledge is that this podcast in no way touches on or covers all that is embedded in the town of Lawrence or the basketball history and present there. There are many points of interest in Lawrence besides basketball, and it is always hard to tell the story of a place But so much has changed since I was in Lawrence. I was unsure about how to go back to these interviews and to this time that was right before the COVID-related shutdowns began. My time in Lawrence at basketball games at the Fog and going out to dinner in restaurants seemed like a time filled with naivete and has been hard to access my previous mindset for this podcast now. Like I am sure many of you all feel, it seems like there was a severe line that created a before and after from what I was working on prior to the pandemic. For many reasons, the interviews and conversations I had in Lawrence are now cast in a new light. I am now looking back at this work while living in a very different place as an artist and as a citizen. 
But ultimately, I hope to return to Lawrence to keep learning and watching and understanding basketball there and what it means beyond the court. I want to thank the Lawrence Art Center for supporting this work and providing me with Jayhawks men's basketball tickets, especially Kyla Strid and Justin Harbaugh for all their logistical and conceptual support. I also wanted to thank all of my guests, Nick Krug, Leo Hayden, Curtis Marsh, and Linda Raymond for answering so many of my questions. And thank you to Tim Gaddy of the DeBru Center for all of his knowledge. And thanks to the Lawrence Public Library for letting me use their recording studio. And thank you to my contacts at Haskell for sitting down with me and sharing what they could about the school. And also thank you to anyone else who was willing to talk to me or gave me a ride when it was too far to walk. And thank you to my dear friend, Adam Maestrel, who encouraged me to come to Lawrence. He and his family opened their home to me while I was there, and I couldn't be more grateful. And thank you, last of all, but not least, to you all for listening. And Happy New Year.